All right, our new series, or our new campaign is called Among Us. In the first part of that series, we're looking at incarnational living and what it looks like to live incarnationally. Um, we started this last week, and the idea of incarnational living is really popular right now in what's known as the missional church. Okay, you guys don't really have to know what that means. That's cool. Um, our strategy here is basically... Uh, in part, at least, built on this strategy of incarnational living. And the idea behind it is to take a look at what Jesus did and how Jesus came to earth in the incarnation. Uh, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, God, was uh, made man, fully God, fully man, and how he came to earth and how he did ministry. Looking at that example and applying that to our ministry that we do as well and how we love one another, how we serve one another, and how we disciple each other um, to be more like Christ. So we kind of use this as a model of what it looks like to do ministry. Last week we talked about location, how Jesus came here, and what that means for us to be willing to go there, go to where people are, to love them and to represent Christ in their locations just like Jesus did for us. Today we're going to talk about time. And how Jesus came and spent time here with us. So the primary text on the incarnation is John 1, 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what this text is saying is that Jesus, again, what I just said, God, the second person of the Trinity, uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. He came and lived among us, which I just learned before service that among us is apparently a really popular video game now. Zero connection, okay? So if you're like, you know what that is? Dude, I, man, I told Ian, I'm like, we're, now I have to like check with uh, someone from Gen Z. I feel old. Like, I have to check with them to make sure that this is a title that we can actually run with. No connection if you know the video game. This is just me being old. Okay. So, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What we're going to focus on today is how Jesus came and he lived among us. For th about 33 years, Jesus came and lived here on earth. Okay, 33 years is a long time. I like to think about... I don't know if this is a helpful exercise or not, but I like to think about if I were God, okay, which I'm not, and if you think that that's a good idea that you be God in this exercise, that's a problem, right? If that doesn't terrify you, <laughs> that's a problem, and we should talk. But think about if I were God, what would I do to redeem the world? There's lots of easier, more efficient, like quick ways to get to the cross, Right? If Jesus just popped in, showed up as a full-grown man in the desert somewhere where nobody saw him, and then just went into Jerusalem, raised an army, started a rebellion, that is a quick way. There's definitely a market for a rebellion in, first, in the first century uh, against the Roman authorities. That's a really good, quick, fast way to get to a Roman cross. It's very efficient. It definitely would have worked. But that's not what Jesus did. Instead, Jesus came and he lived among us here for about 33 years. And he made friendships. He had family. He lived in a community. And he worked with people who were hurting, sick, and in need. 
So what we're doing in this series is looking at the big picture theology of the incarnation, and then we're going to look at how Jesus also models this in his ministry in the Gospels. So what we're going to do is actually go to the end of Jesus' life. This may seem a little bit off or a little strange, but we're going to go to the end of his life in the Gospel of John. And what we see here at the end of Jesus' story is John is illustrating how Jesus' time spent with the disciples was so valuable. And how the amount of time that he spent with them really established their relationships and made these moments at the end of Jesus' life so meaningful. Because I really think that this is true, that it's in the... It's in, when one's imminent departure is threatened, that's when we truly realize the value of the time that we had with them. Does that make sense? When somebody might be leaving, that's when we realize how much we really valued them and the time that they spent with us. And that's what's happening in John 13 through 17. At the end of Jesus' life, he's, he's headed to the cross. He knows this. He's warned the disciples about this. In John 13 through 17, John spends five chapters talking about the Last Supper, okay? It's known as the Farewell Discourse as well, or the Last Supper. This is such a meaningful, intimate moment between Jesus and his disciples. This is the kind of moment that only happens when you have deep relationship with one another. And I think that's John's point through these five chapters. One, he spends a ton of time on it, five chapters, on this. His point is to illustrate and to demonstrate how close their relationships are. So again, this is the Last Supper, and all of the, the other three gospel writers, they include the institution of the Lord's Supper in the Last Supper, which we're going to practice communion together later in the service today. They all include that, but John doesn't. He doesn't even mention it. It's like not even on his radar, which he's writing this later, okay, this, the institution of the Lord's Supper was super significant. That was like the, the most important part of the early church's service was communion and coming together for the Lord's Supper. It centered around that in the early church. John doesn't even mention it. Why? Commentators love to talk about that and think about it and debate about it. But I think one of the ideas that makes the most sense is because John is focusing on what the Lord's Supper is supposed to mean. On what Communion together is supposed to represent as the church. Unity, mutual love, care, and concern for one another. In the early church, communion wasn't just a thing that we would do once in a while on Sunday. It was something that illustrated unity, love, together within the community of believers. So that's what John does. So what we should be seeing in the farewell discourse of John 13 through 17 is a picture of what church should look like and how we should love one another, how we should care for each other. <clears throat> so before we jump into this, we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to encourage you guys are like, whoa, this is going to be a long service. Uh, I encourage you to read it in one sitting, though, this week. Okay? If you follow with the devotional, I think on Tuesday, I ask you to read it. Read John 13 through 17, all the way through one sitting. So you get the big picture, you see the themes, the whole conversation and how it develops. But before we do, remember, these guys have been together for three years, doing everything together. They followed Jesus everywhere he went. 
They ate together. They lived together. Okay, everything was together in community with Jesus and his 12 disciples. And now, in the midst of this conversation, Jesus is like, ah, I'm leaving, guys. And he's really cryptic about how he's leaving and what it's going to look like. But he just says, I'm leaving. So imagine that. He's your leader. You gave up your work, your family, your friends, your safety, your security, everything to go follow this guy around uh, Israel for three years. And now he's like, hey, guys, I'm out. <laughs> See ya. Good luck. You'd probably be a little freaked out too, right? What am I going to do now? Jesus, I've been following you. You've been everything to me. You're just leaving? All right. So part of this conversation in John 14, okay, it threw me a couple of times when I was putting this together. John 1, 14. We're switching to John 14. 1, it got me. Okay. You guys don't care. Verse 1 says this. This is in, in Jesus' conversation. Jesus is talking with his disciples. He had just, uh, in chapter 13, he washes their feet, and he's their leader. It's an act of servant leadership. It's a beautiful illustration of him cleansing them and their, his servant leadership. Then he goes into John 14, and he says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. One of the crazy themes of this is like Jesus is going to the cross. He's about to suffer and be brutally murdered, right? And he's distressed. And he says he's leaving. And what Jesus ends up doing is comforting his disciples. <laughs> so Jesus is about to go to the cross and suffer this terribly brutal death. And he knows this. And his disciples should be comforting him. But no, Jesus is still comforting them. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. Or I, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Could have talked about this in our location talk last week. Then verse 4, he says, You know the way to the place where I'm going. I love this. This, just, this is such a real conversation that John is inviting us into with Jesus and his disciples. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? So we like to give Thomas a lot of grief for being the doubting Thomas. This is a reasonable question, okay? Jesus, you haven't told us where you're going. How do we know where, how do we know how to get there? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus says here is he's going to tease out later. One of the most definitive, like exclusive statements of faith that we have. Jesus is saying that he himself is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. It's very exclusive. It is only through Jesus that we have access to the Father to be with him in his presence. And what we're going to see is it's through faith in him and his identity that Jesus is pointing to. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay, so this is packed with a lot of like Old Testament theology in this place. You can't see God and live is the basic thing that we need to know for this. Anyone who beholds the face of God dies. Okay, like Moses saw his back, right? You don't, you don't see God's face and live. 
you get too close to the presence of God, you die. Okay? When Isaiah is brought into the presence of God, he falls on his face and he says, I'm unworthy. Because he knows that if he gets too close to God, he, he's going to die. Unholiness cannot be in the presence of holiness and live. Okay? So it's packed with that kind of thinking. And Philip is saying, uh, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus has already said, you know him and have seen him. You've seen the Father. So Philip, his question is loaded with that. Show us the Father and that will be enough. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Okay, this is, this is so cool. Even after I have been among you such a long time. Okay, so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, hey, you've, you, you don't get this? You still missed it, Philip. Okay, how can you ask that question when I have been with you for so long? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus' challenge to Philip here is, Philip, haven't we been together for three years? Haven't you witnessed my whole life, seen everything that I've done and taught you? How can you say, show us the Father? You still don't get it. Jesus is about to leave, and his closest disciples still don't get it. And his challenge to them is, I've been with you for so long. How did you miss it? And he goes on, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So Jesus is calling to Philip. He's saying, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And you should know this by now, Philip, because of the amount of time that I have spent with you, because of how long I have been with you. So, in the context of our series, Following the Way of Jesus, Time spent among us should point people to faith in Jesus. So if we're following the ministry model of Jesus and how Jesus lived and how Jesus did ministry, by Jesus spending time with Philip and his disciples, they should have known who he truly was just by the time that he spent with them. That's Jesus' challenge to him. Philip, haven't we been together so long? And how have you still missed it? So if we're doing ministry like Jesus... Time spent with people should point people to Jesus' true identity and who he really is. What we're talking about here is discipleship. Okay? So here's, I think, a pretty true statement. Discipleship begins with time spent together. Okay, when I say discipleship, people get a little, like, freaked out. Like, what, what do you mean by that? How am I supposed to disciple somebody? That's a big task. How am I supposed to be discipled by somebody? I don't understand. What is it? What is this discipleship thing? Okay. People get really kind of strange about that. And when we talk about discipleship, we just mean growth in general. Like morally, we should be being better about following the, the moral laws of God. We should love each other more. 
uh, knowledge. We should grow in knowledge and understanding. We should uh, grow in depth of intimacy with Jesus and understanding who he is more and loving him more, serving the community more. All of these things, it's holistic that we should be growing closer to Jesus. And I think this discipleship process, it begins with time spent together. But let's just simplify it even more, okay? So if you're like freaked out about this, you're like, wait, he wants me to help disciple people. I'm not ready for that. I'm not sure that I can handle this. I'm not sure I can handle their questions that people are going to have. I'm not sure I'm good enough. I don't think I know enough. How can I help disciple someone? Okay, let's just simplify it one more time. Discipleship is time together. Okay? So that we can do. We can spend time with people. There's more that happens in this, but let's just start here, okay? If you want to disciple somebody or be discipled by somebody and grow closer together, closer, closer to Jesus together, it starts just time spent together. Just hang out with people who know and love Jesus. Here's how I want to think about this. Let's think about it. The difference between the classroom and the home. We're just using these as examples, okay? So I think the church has done ministry in a classroom setting, or we've thought of discipleship and ministry to one another in a classroom model for a very long time. This model suggests, like, come to the church for, uh, whether it's small group, whether it's uh, courses, to hear me preach, to do sing together, whatever else we want. We think of that as discipleship. If I want to grow in Jesus, I go to uh, the church to have my life enriched to grow in Jesus. Okay, that's part of it. But I want us to think of this as discipleship as less than that, or less in that category, more in what we would call like a home category. So think about it, um, the difference between education, going to school, and raising kids, okay? Both are great. Both have their place. Both have their strengths and weaknesses, all right? We're going to kind of break it down a little bit about what each does differently, the strengths and weaknesses of each, okay? So in the classroom setting, it's kind of, it's out there. We can think of it as being out there, right? You go to school to, to learn. If you're a teacher, you go to school to teach. Like that's your setting. It's a different place that you go to to uh, do your job or to learn. Home, we tend to think of as like here. This is my space. This is where I dwell, where I live, okay? So the difference, I think, is this idea of life is just done together at home. When you're raising your kids, you just do life together at home. When you think of it from a classroom or an education model of out there, you're not doing everything in life together there. In the classroom, in the out there model, you can fake it. At the in-home model, you can't fake it. There's integrity required. 
Okay, we see this in the church all the time. With the classroom model of celebrity, big-name pastors who can fake it for years, be great teachers, but internally their integrity is corrupted. They have little to no actual integrity. We see this time and time again with megachurch celebrity pastors when they fall. And they have been struggling with integrity for years that nobody either knew about or was willing to do anything about. Because in that classroom model, you can fake it. And the church has been doing that for a long time. But if it's a home in here model, you can't fake it. Living life together with people requires integrity. Again, think about it in the home setting. It's in here. It's where you live. It's where you dwell. Your kids growing up, if you have little kids in the home, they see you at your best and at your worst. And everything in between, right? They see you and how you function and how you operate when you get a phone call that's disappointing or when you read something on the news that's disappointing or that frustrates you and makes you angry. Your kids see all of that. At home, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have to apologize. Somebody's going to offend you, and you're going to respond to that. You'll have to answer for your sin to them as well, as they do to you. The old adage that more is caught than taught, I think, is true. And in the home setting, your kids will see that. So I want to think of our church more like that. <laughs> Actually, I wrote this down. I think when I interviewed Jim a while ago for our, our podcast, he said that he would always tell his kids, I can't hear you because your actions are speaking so loudly. Did I get that right, Jim? Yeah. That's right. And that's absolutely true. Because we see each other and how we live, and in that setting, you just can't fake it. So in the classroom setting, it's more formal. You come in, your time is structured, it's scheduled, right? In the home setting, it's informal. In the classroom model, there's time for questions where the kids can ask and you can answer. It's kind of structured like that. In the home setting, your kids will just ask you questions whenever the question pops into their head. And I get this all the time. Shiloh was going to bed the other day and like falling asleep and asked me like one of the deepest theological questions I've ever heard. And I'm like, buddy, we don't have time for this, man. <laughs> well, I answered it in brief and then I'm like, we'll talk about it later. Ellie, at breakfast, we're just sitting down eating breakfast and she goes, does God's story ever end? Boom. <laughs> It's a big question, Ellie. It's a great question. So we just sat and we talked about it. But it just happened while we were eating breakfast. Shiloh, we're riding in the car. We're just doing life together, right? He asked me, when did God begin? Big questions that just happen while you're living life and just doing things. That's the home model versus the classroom model. The classroom model is part-time. Uh, home, it's full-time in the sense that and you can like go to the classroom and learn, and then you leave, and then you're done with that, right? Home is all-encompassing. <laughs> you are always on, especially those of you who have little toddlers, like little kids in the house that aren't in school yet. 
You have to always be on. There is no place where you are safe from them. How many of you, if you have toddlers in the home, when was the last time you went to the bathroom without somebody knocking on the door? It's been a while, right? Because you always have to be on. There's no peace. There's no place where you can go to get away from the little rascals. They're everywhere. They're always there. Classroom model is very good for teaching information efficiently to a large number of people. It has its place. It has its value. The home model is better for changing hearts, lives, and behaviors. If there's one thing that I've learned in my six years of pastoral ministry, the one thing that maybe I, I overvalued coming into it was how effective teaching truly can be. It's important. It has its place. We're called to do it in Scripture. But I think that this is true. I think in the church we have been expecting way too much of teaching in this classroom model and way too little of the home, life together, time spent together model to change lives and behaviors. And what we've done in the church is we've created Christians that have really big heads but weak bodies. Let me explain. We have a lot of information about God, but we really, really stink at loving each other. We stink at making sacrifices for each other, for the betterment of your neighbor sitting next to you. We have a ton of knowledge, but we're really, really soft in the face of persecution. When things seem to get a little hard around us to be a Christian, uh, we get freaked out and terrified and we crumble. We know a lot, but we really stink at giving up our rights for the benefit of others, for caring for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the vulnerable in society. I think those behaviors come, and those things will grow as we do life together and spend more time with one another. Just teaching on these things isn't enough. It's not effective enough. Instead, we need to see it lived out. So I think what this requires is number one, integrity. Band, you guys can come on up. Let's get set. We're going to do communion together as well. This first requires integrity. Commitment to being a disciple yourself. Okay? Because if we think about it in the home model, right? You can't fake it. The people around you will see. They will know if you are not a person of integrity, if you're not truly trying to live the way of Jesus and to live it well. So you need to have integrity. You need to be striving to be a better follower of Jesus, to do discipleship in this model. We need to have intentionality. If you don't intentionally spend time with people who are different than you, whom you are discipling, who are discipling you, you just won't do it. If it doesn't make it on your calendar, you won't do it. We can have all the good intentions in the world, but we need some intentionality to say, I'm going to make this happen, and I'm going to show up, and I'm going to be there and spend time with people. Next is investment. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to demand something of you. It's going to demand your time, <laughs> for one, which is maybe your most precious resource, right? It's going to demand a lot of time. 
And a lot of time that isn't going to feel productive. Think of the life, the three years that Jesus spent with his disciples. In the Gospels, what we have is just small portions of that. He spent a lot of other time with them, just doing stuff. And who knows what they were doing, right? But it's in that time that we build relationships and invest in one another. The big thing that I want you guys to be hearing here is that we as a church should be all discipling each other. When we think about time, we all have the same amount of time and it's all very limited. So we have to choose very intentionally where we are going to spend that time. We need to disciple our families, disciple your spouse, disciple your children primarily, and then we need to disciple one another in the church. John and I simply cannot spend the amount of time required with all of you to disciple you and to help you grow. So we need to commit to this as a community together to disciple one another. And let's just start. It's a big task. I get it. Let's just start by spending time with each other. And if you are intentionally, authentically pursuing discipleship with Jesus, I think that will be caught by the people we're spending time with. Lord, Help us to make this investment in one another, to give of our time for each other, just as Jesus, you did with your disciples, just as you did when you came here and lived among us for 33 years. Jesus, in doing so, you showed us who God is. So Lord, in our time spent with each other, help us to reveal that, Lord, our life has been changed by you, Jesus, and to give you glory and honor in the time and energy that we spend together. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to go into a time of communion now. So as the band starts playing, um, we're going to go to the back. So come to the middle. Start in the back rows. So, or actually start in the front row so you can see. Start in the front rows. Come to the middle aisle here and then go back around. Grab the communion elements and come back to your seat. Hold on to them and we'll pray for them together um, and then partake. In closing, I fully realize the irony of preaching a sermon series like this called Among Us in the era of COVID, where there's complications about being in the same location and spending time together. But I think through this season of life, we have realized how much we need this. And my hope is that as you're realizing this more and more, that this will become a priority for you moving forward. And again, in closing, yes, I expect you to fulfill the Great Commission and disciple, make disciples of all nations. This is all of our responsibility, is to make disciples, to help one another be better disciples, to help share our faith with others who don't currently know Jesus. This is on all of us. And when a community does this and a community invests in one another to disciple each other, it is so beautiful. And I think we can have a profound impact on each other's lives. And because this is a daunting task, I get it. Let's just simplify it. Just spend time together. And as you're spending time together, living out of your faith in Christ, living as a disciple of him, I think you'll encourage each other. We'll help one another follow Jesus better. Lord, thank you for your model that Jesus, you came and lived with us. 
Lord, your time spent with us showed us who God is. Again, Lord, help us be people of integrity when we spend time with others that we point to you, Jesus, and to the transformed life that is available in you. Lord, we recognize that this is difficult. It may not be as efficient as we want it to be. But Lord, we pray for transformation. We pray for spiritual development, for growth in all of us. To follow you better, Jesus, and to love you more and love one another. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here, guys. If you need prayer, grab me. I'll be out there in the lobby. I'd love to pray with you. Have a great week.